Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have had a good weekend, and I hope wherever you all may live in, in the world, I hope all of you are doing all right. Well, I'm glad to be back on the air, and I'm sure some of you were probably beginning to wonder uh, when was Kurt going to be on the air again next. Well, I'm pleased to say that I'm on the air, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with you all another uh, podcast segment to Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. In this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn um, everything there is to know about the uh, British leadership in this um, upcoming battle. We're also going to learn some stuff involving other um, commanders below the um, head commander. And I think it's fair to say we've already established who the uh, lead um, commander is on the side of the British going into uh, Utah Springs, being Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart. I think it's also fair to say that we will uh, learn uh, we will learn some uh, terminology and we will also uh, learn some information behind why uh, members of Parliament felt it was necessary to pursue a Southern course in the uh, Revolutionary War. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready for another um, exciting um, podcast segment to our current book topic series, Utah Springs, The Final Battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. So here's our first leadoff question. Uh, did British Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart have any other lead command posts during the Revolutionary War prior to Utah Springs? Believe it or not, folks, British Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart did not have any other um, lead command posts prior to Utah Springs. Uh, Utah Springs would actually be his only independent command throughout the Revolutionary War's duration. So we have to wonder, uh, how can we give someone the lead command for an upcoming battle if they've only had... um, given if they've not had uh, really any other independent commands throughout the war, how are we going to be able to decide for ourselves if who's in charge really is, go- if he's really up for this uh, task and whether or not he truly is an effective leader? Well, I do know that uh, for British Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, he has been very actively involved in the American Revolutionary War. Okay, so how so? Well, six years prior to 1781, in July of 1775, Alexander Stewart earned the lieutenant colonel rank status within the 3rd Regiment of Foot. But he did not officially arrive into South Carolina with his unit until uh, June of 1781. So think about that. He, uh, uh, lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart and his... Um, unit, the 3rd Regiment of Foot, do not get into South Carolina until really in a sense two and a half months before, um, two and a half, three months before uh, Utah Springs. So he's got a lot of ground to cover in terms of um, knowing what the uh, layout of South Carolina is. Um, I mean, after all, you've got the low country, but you've got the uh, back country or what we call the interior country. But there is so much ground to cover in South Carolina that the best way to cover it, if you 
were to ask me from a from an advantage point, sure, you can send troops out on scouting missions all you want, but if you really want to know the terrain, wouldn't it be best to have cavalrymen? You know, think about it. Cavalrymen, they're on their horseback. They can move a lot quicker than, say, troops whom are having to march with excessive equipment. The, you know, being on horse uh, just gives you that extra advantage in, in getting uh, faster from point A to point B. Now, uh, prior to uh, Utah Springs comes September of 1781, had Lieutenant Colonel Stewart led his men into action between uh, the months of June and August? Well, I do have good news to report and that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart did have um, action in um, leading his men um, within the state of South Carolina, or at the time of 1781, the colony of South Carolina. After all, Britain would obviously have refused to recognize her uh, subjects, being the 13 colonies, as fully independent uh, bodies, fully independent governing bodies, I should say, or rather a, a larger institution, uh, which has not obviously been created yet, but that would obviously be the ultimate goal, is to have some form of government that is totally independent from that of the mother country. So for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, he went about conducting a relief expedition into uh, western South Carolina shortly after he and his regimental uh, regimental uh, foot unit had uh, first arrived uh, to the state after June 4th. So if you think about it, if uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart and his men arrived into South Carolina around June the 4th, that means they would have gotten there at least three full months before Utah Springs goes into um, taking place come September 8th of 1781. The relief expedition which Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart led sent him and his forces of the 3rd Regiment into a um, place that had been known for years as a trading post between um, English settlers and um, the greater Cherokee Indian nation. Most notably, you had the upper, the lower, and the middle Cherokee. But 96, uh, believe it or not, there still is a place in South Carolina today, folks, called 96, and it's spelled out. But 96 was the trading post for the English settlers in the, up, in the uh, greater Cherokee nation. And 96 basically refers to um, the overall mileage, or rather I should say the distance from the closest from the closest to the furthest uh, towns uh, marked along the trail. So basically when you think of 96, you think of like the overall number of miles from uh, point A to point B along the uh, trail in terms of uh, the closest to furthest uh, trading route uh, posts that um, English settlers and, and Indians of the uh, Cherokee Indian Nation uh, whom went about uh, trading uh, with one another. So why is 90, why was 96 so important? Well, for one, 96 is in, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's in western South Carolina, but if, but if you want to get a better uh, definition of western South Carolina, how about we say northwest South Carolina? So in other words, it's close by to, say, Union, Greenville, uh, Spartanburg, Lawrence, just south of those places, but not too far. The relief expedition 
um, sent Lieutenant Colonel Stewart and his Third uh, Regiment of Foot into 96. Uh, 96 was one of two places in the Palmetto State where significant British forts remained currently intact. Well, where was the other um, British fort or um, series of British forts that was um, strongly intact uh, located in South Carolina? It was 200 miles southeast of 96. How about the Port of Charleston? So by 1781, or really well after the start of 1781, South Carolina is gradually, gradually, in phase after phase, slipping out of British control and into the hands of the Patriots and the Americans. It's almost as if a 360 reversal of fortune has taken place where the Americans are benefiting. You know, when General Lord Charles Cornwallis was present in South Carolina um, in 1780, he had all kinds of momentum in his direction. You had the siege of Charleston that uh, ended around mid-May of 1780. Then you had the Waxhaw Massacre. Then you had um, Camden, where uh, Cornwallis pretty much routed Horatio Gates. But, of course, we could thank Horatio Gates' uh, inept... Uh, leadership but you know there for a while Cornwallis and his men are just on target nothing can stop them but of course um, as time goes along things change new leadership comes in of course you know you have Nathaniel Green coming in things change for the better but it, but by 1781 uh, mid to late 1781 the state of South Carolina in terms of British loyalty, uh, British strongholds, you only have two places, 96 to the northwest and 200 miles to the southeast, the port of Charleston. There's really nothing in between 96 and Charleston that remains as a uh, British stronghold. However, what's at stake uh, going forward being Utah Springs could possibly you know, flip the, the entire uh, game. So that's why perhaps this battle, being a forgotten battle, ought to be worth um, taking a greater study into. Now, in the end, the British forces prevailed at the Siege of 96 after a 28-day um, stand. In other words, this battle took place for four weeks. But Lord Francis Rawdon, who was the current lead commander, he oversaw the evacuation of the fort at 96. This kind of makes um, a, makes um, things a little bit more complicated. If you're the British and all of a sudden you've won at 96, why would you want to oversee an evacuation of this fort? Well, the reason why Lord Francis Rawdon saw the evacuation of the fort is because he saw the greater mission centering upon withdrawing troops from the northwest part of South Carolina back to Charleston. He, he was greatly concerned that if Charleston fell, then there would be really, in a sense, nothing left worth staying for in South Carolina. But Charleston, given that it's a port, it's a port city, and, of course, prior to the Revolutionary War breaking out, Charleston was in the top three, top five major port cities in colonial America, but it was the number one port city for the southern colonies. Lord Francis Rawdon believes that if they can maintain Charleston, then the longer the conflict might um, 
subsist in South Carolina to where eventually maybe maybe to where eventually um, the um, Patriots or the Americans might surrender and uh, take up uh, an eventual um, allegiance with the crown, perhaps with the intention of the southern colonies taking up allegiance. After all, if one region of America decides to no longer be unified in this cause, then then for uh, Parliament and the Crown, their hopes are that perhaps the other colonies, say being the middle and northern colonies, their dominoes will fall to where it will um, to where the um, marriage of the thirteen colonies under that of the sub under that of the Crown will return back to what it was prior to all of this um, rebellion ever taking place to begin with in the first place. So there still is a lot at stake here. I think the uh, strategy is a little crazy, but at the same time, I wasn't alive, so I can't legislate for Lord Francis Rawdon. However, um, in July of 1781, Lord Rawdon did give up his post due to poor health, which paved the way for Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart to have broader command, or I should say uh, power, broader command power along the battlefield line. So, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart really should not be considered a nobody. You know, he's obviously uh, proven that in a short amount of time in in South Carolina that he's got what it takes to... um, independently lead um, a group of men into uh, combat. Now, uh, by the time of Utah Springs battles beginning, had Lieutenant Colonel Stewart overseen his regiments get formed into brigades? Unfortunately, uh, he did not. This negatively impacted him, and we have to wonder, will it negatively impact him come the time of uh, Utah Springs battle? Well, for one, one reason why it did negatively impact him was because the officers under him struggled quite often uh, between June and August to help effectively coordinate troop movements. So, yes, they may have prevailed. Those officers under um, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, whom were there at 96, while, yes, they held the the high ground in uh, keeping the fort from falling into American hands, it didn't. It doesn't automatically translate into um, those commanders being able to effectively coordinate uh, proper troop movement. A lot of twists and turns, folks. But maybe that's uh, what makes all of this, um, all all this, all the more suspenseful for the right reasons. Now, uh, what made? I, before I answer, before I relay this next question, rather I should say. We're going to learn some stuff about other um, regiments and, and a little bit of history on them and why um, they are important, given that these regiments that we'll be learning about will be partaking at uh, Utah Springs. So uh, what made Britain's 63rd Regiment of Foot so unique? Anybody curious to know why, why Britain's 63rd Regiment of Foot is unique? Well, for starters, the regiment dated back to 1756. And what's important about 1756, folks, that's the year which the Seven Years' War, hence the French and Indian War, first broke out. Secondly, the 63rd Regiment's involvement in the Revolutionary War stretched as far back 
as June 1775, when they took part at what battle, folks? Was it the battles of Lexington and Concord or the Battle of Bunker Hill? Choice B, Bunker Hill, Massachusetts, Lexington and Concord were from April of 1775. So it turns out that uh, Bunker Hill, being outside of Boston, it truly became the Revolutionary War's first deadly battle. Of course, we have not officially declared our separation yet from England. Of course, that won't be until uh, July of 1776. But in June of 1775, we have to keep in mind that we have plenty of uh, delegates at the Second Continental Congress whom are really, really hoping to avoid an all-out war. Remember, they want that olive branch petition to go through. It's all going to be up to uh, the Crown and Parliament. Of course, they can send all the olive branch petitions they want, but it doesn't automatically mean that uh, Parliament's going to go through. But what I do know is that um, given that, yes, Bunker Hill is the Re Revolutionary War's first deadly battle, what I find very intriguing about this battle is that the British won this battle. How did they win this battle? Well, for starters, the mission was deadly to begin with. Um, they Troops were being ferried across the river, uh, across the, uh, the Charles River, that is, uh, from uh, from their garrison to the um, landing site where they departed off their um, boats and marched the entire way up a hill. It was really, this might sound like strong language, but many historians even say to this day that it was suicidal. And I've watched uh, reenactments of it on television through documentaries, and it truly was. But it was the only way that they were going to be able to get to make their way up to the uh, Patriots' uh, redoubt fortifications with the hopes of trying to overtake those um, fortifications. The first two uh, frontal assaults were deadly. For the Patriots, their um, mission was very simple, led by Dr. Joseph Warren. We don't have George Washington just yet. Of course, June 17, 1775, I should point out that Washington at this point has already been named uh, the lead commander of the Continental Army, but little does he know that a battle is about to ensue. But then again, I don't think anybody else in Congress would know. So Dr. Joseph Warren is often referred to as the American Revolution's uh, forgotten hero. However, he is going to be leading um, this, uh, he's going to be coordinating this battle, and his instructions are the following. Do not fire until you see them being the enemy 50 yards ahead or 50 as they get 50 yards closer to us. That's when we fire. And for the American soldiers, their objective not only was to fire within the 50 yard radius, but to start mowing down British troops by firing low and firing at towards their knees. And the same not only for the troops, but for the officers. Now, why would you want to fire? at the knees because by firing at the enemy's knees you've pretty much taken them out that is that by firing at their knees they're not going to be able to get up and they're not going to be able to fight think about it, folks you need to have your knees to be able to be mobile and moving around so once you shoot the enemy at their knees 
in their knees, they're not going to be mobile anymore. And by uh, taking down as many officers as possible, the fewer officers you have, the less ability there is for the enemy to uh, regroup based upon um, high-level um, instructor's command. Well, in the end, um, the reason why the 63rd Regiment of Foot must be uh, mentioned here is because this regiment of foot saved the day. They uh, participated in a third charge attack up the hill by means of a bayonet charge. They broke Patriot lines simply because the Americans ran out of ammunition supplies. And because they ran out of ammunition supplies, they were forced to retreat. And even though the British won, it came at a terrible cost. The British lost nearly a quarter of their men, both troops and officers. About 1,100 men were wounded or killed. You know, I would have thought after two assaults and being um, annihilated that I, I would have just called it a quits. You know what? Save, save, save fighting what's left of our troops for another day. We've already been mowed down twice. Why risk it a third time? But, you know, yes, they say third time's a charm, but it, even that alone comes at a very bad price. But nonetheless, the uh, 63rd Regiment of Foot also uh, fought at Long Island, August of 1776. They were at Brandywine, uh, Pennsylvania, September of 1777, uh, Germantown, Pennsylvania, October 1777. They also fought at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey, June 1778. And what do you know, two years later, 1780, the 63rd Regiment becomes involved in the Carolinas campaign. So that's their little story right there. And um, as for their commander, his name is Major Charles Stewart. He is the leader of Britain's 63rd Regiment of Foot. Going into Utah Springs, he is a captain. He has been a captain with the regiment dating back to 1775. He got promoted to major, fought with his unit north and south from Bunker Hill to Charleston. Uh, let's learn about Britain's 64th Regiment of Foot. Did Britain's 64th Regiment of Foot get established in 1756, the same year as the 63rd? Yes. Ironically, the 64th Regiment's first contact on American soil dated just before 1770, when they were sent to Boston with the intent on quashing the existing state of unrest. The 64th did not participate in the Boston Massacre. They spent most of their time being stationed at Castle William. Castle William was a, a refuge place for British officials and soldiers whom sought shelter in the midst of unrest. And where was a lot of that unrest taking place? Right in the heart of Boston, which in Revolutionary War time was not considered a city, but a town. Now, uh, a fellow by the name of Captain Dennis Kelly, he would lead the 64th Regiment of Foot. He had been with the 64th uh, since 1774. He doesn't become a captain until 1778, but uh, did see action at Brandywine and Monmouth. Interesting enough, uh, Brandywine, Pennsylvania, and Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey, were um, often referred to as two of the Revolutionary War's larger open uh, field battle uh, campaigns. 
Well, if that's interesting enough, folks, how about another uh, regiment uh, to pay careful attention to? Had the 84th Regiment of Foot, better known as Royal Highland Emigrants, participated in widespread battle activity throughout England's 13 colonies during the Revolutionary War? Yes, the 84th uh, Regiment of Foot partook in raids along New York State's Lake Champlain and Mohawk Valley regions. Now, if any of you aren't sure about where the Mohawk Valley region is in New York State, that's um, in central New York, uh, just on the outskirts of uh, Syracuse. Lake Champlain is in uh, northern New York. Uh, the the town, or rather the city of Champlain, is east of, um, I would say, east of uh, villages in the Adirondacks, like, say, Lake Placid, Tupper Lake, Saranac Lake. Uh, Lake Champlain, or I should say Champlain, New York, is right along the New York-Vermont uh, state line. So this 84th Regiment of Foot, yes, had been... Uh, had partaken in raids along New York State's Lake Champlain and Mohawk Valley regions. They saw activity in Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, and South Carolina. That's a little theme right there. Virginia, North, South Carolina, Georgia, Southern Colonies, Virginia, North Carolina, the Upper South, the Lower South being South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, the 84th Regiment came about from Scottish troops whom served in the French and Indian War. This regiment also had the oldest and most experienced officer corps of any regiment in North America. That says a lot right there for a unit that has been around um, for quite some time. And as a matter of fact, when I read this book, I had no idea about the 84th Regiment being having had the oldest and most experienced uh, officer corps. So just when we think we've learned everything there is to know about the American Revolution, whether it's from a um, broader standpoint or from uh, individual battles or about a particular leader or two, we're always bound to learn something new, which is never a bad thing. Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, whom are the head commanders of this 84th Regiment um, Highlander unit? We have Captains Robert Campbell and Ronald McKinnon. Captain Ronald McKinnon fought at the Siege of Charleston in the spring of 1780, and the 84th Regiment of Foot saw extensive action throughout South Carolina, Captain Campbell partook in British expedition to Virginia October of 1780. Both captains were excellent leaders. And why they were excellent leaders? Well, there were various reasons why, but if, but if there was one I could um, tell you all, it would be the following, that both men were, excelled at being um, very good um, commanders when it came to commanding smaller units given uh, the battle action they had already faced. So we have to remember that not all of our uh, commanders, whether you're on the Patriot side or the British side, they don't always have to be um, commanding large-scale unit forces. They can be uh, just as good at commanding smaller size units and still um, seize the day with a victory. Now, uh, going into uh, the Utah Springs battle engagement, what tactic, or I should say militaristic tactic, had British officers often used when aiming 
to catch Patriot, or rather I should say American troops off guard. So going into this into the Utah Springs battle engagement, what tactic or militaristic tactic do you all think British officers often used when aiming to catch the Americans off guard? The tactic uh, employed pertained to a flank to a flank company or flank companies. Flank companies involve the use of one or more uh, special companies uh, within a regiment whose purpose sought to create shock and awe and perhaps striking fear into the enemy where their retreat became one of chaos. You know, it's so easy to think that when a retreat occurs that everybody's going to line up properly and... Um, and know how to um, to leave in a manner to where they're not panicking, to where they're not, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs. But we have to keep in mind that uh, early on in the wars, um, the greater wars um, outset, especially the New York campaign, which was a disaster for uh, General Washington, many of his men fled the moment they saw the British marching. Not just marching, but but even as they got somewhat closer, Washington was known at one point to have uh, started grabbing soldiers, running for fear. He basically told them, get back, get back in line and fight like men. I mean, he went as far as saying out loud, are these the men that God gave me to fight this, to fight this um, great war against a against an enemy, against an evil, an evil empire of sorts. In other words, for George Washington, you know, yes, things weren't going well at, in, this new, in the New York campaign, but did it have to get to the point where he, was, he would be forced to see his own men running for their lives when they had not even been fired upon? But we must keep in mind, too, that uh, for many of the men at the war's early onset, and it could be fair to say that the same would um, have occurred um, during the Middle Colonies campaign as well as for the war in the South, that there, while there were a large number of men whom had fought in the French and Indian War, we also should bear in mind that there were a lot of men whom had never even fought a war to begin with. For those whom knew what it was like to be out in a field hunting, then they obviously knew the reason for why they were using their rifle or musket. It was to hunt food to provide for their family. Why would they have had any reason to, to feel as though they would be one day going to war facing the most formidable foe the world had ever seen, being that of the British Empire? So for George Washington, he was forced to you know, realize that, hey, look, you know, if I'm going to get these men to fight, I have to come up with newer tactics. And, of course, over time that happened to where the men themselves fighting did have more confidence at what lied at stake. So we have to keep in mind that just because we have a battle going on, that we have a greater conflict at stake, that not everybody, not everyone may have that mental toughness in them. And it's all based upon experience. So, 
anyways, yes, if for the um, for the British instituting the flank uh, company or the flank companies, yes, it was um, these were what we would call like the equivalent of, say, like the um, Green Berets of the Army or a Navy SEAL, special companies who um, institute what we call special teams tactics where they seek to create shock and awe and force the enemy into uh, doing something that results in a um, non in an unprofessional retreat, but that's one that's brought on by uh, means of chaos. But the flank companies consisted of uh, what we call grenadiers. Grenadiers were your taller soldiers whom led the attack. They are better trained and will carry more equipment. While they are more prone to casualties, at the same time, they are um, better trained and prepared for what lies at stake. Besides the grenadiers, uh, the flank companies also consisted of the light infantry, the small and faster soldiers. Remember, they, they're the ones that carried the less equipment, but they did the homework for the grenadiers. They were the scouts. They were the, um, uh, they were the ones whom were uh, leading the way and um, planning out the mission so that when the uh, grenadiers were ready to go, they would be the first to um, they would be the first to uh, to lead the attack, and if they were the first to take the casualties, then they were willing to do what was necessary in protecting those whom had gone ahead of them and doing the homework and ensuring that the mission was that of victory. Now, uh, were there a good number of British officers going into Utah Springs uh, whom were present during the siege of 96, a few months prior to September of 1781? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, there were um, a handful of British officers that um, participated during the siege of 96, and they would also, and many of these officers went about uh, serving in the upcoming battle uh, being Utah Springs. There was one by the name of uh, Colonel William Fortune whom had served previously as surveyor for South Carolina's Camden District prior to hostilities breaking out. Then you had a Captain James Shaw of the New Jersey Volunteer 1st Battalion whom led Light Infantry uh, Company then there was a Lieutenant John uh, Troop of the 2nd New Jersey Battalion, as well as Captain Jacob Van Buskirk, whom led the New Jersey Volunteer 3rd Battalion. Uh, Jacob Van, uh, Captain Jacob Van Buskirk uh, went south in 1780 and saw action throughout most of South Carolina. He served with the British for six years and hailed from a large, well-known, prominent New Jersey Loyalist family. Then there was a Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Allen of the New Jersey Volunteer 3rd Battalion, whom recruited Loyalist soldiers in British-controlled northern, in Nor in British northern New Jersey during 1776 and fought with his unit at Savannah in, in late 1778. Isn't it interesting to, to realize here that we have British officers... Loyalist officers, and not all of them, I mean, yes, we, there probably are some loyalist officers whom hail from southern colonies, 
including South Carolina, but how ironic that we have loyalist officers from northern and middle colonies whom have made their way down southward to fight in the southern campaign. But we should keep in mind that even loyalties themselves, regardless of whose side you're on, don't have limits. Although loyalties, loyalties are like a marriage. They are for better and for worse. And as another constant reminder, that just because one is a patriot or just because one's a loyalist, it doesn't automatically mean that the rest of the family is either patriot or loyalist. There, there were probably many families where the divisions were either 50-50, 60-40. I mean, I could go on and on, but just because one or two members of a family were patriot, it didn't mean everybody else was patriot. Even amongst the gentry, I, I learned um, at Colonial Williamsburg not long ago, my wife and I were there, um, Edmund Randolph, who of the uh, very powerful Randolph family of Virginia, Edmund Randolph's uncle was the uh, was Peyton Randolph, whom was speak Virginia's um, speaker of the House of Burgesses. Uh, Peyton Randolph was also the president of the First Continental Congress. Sadly, Peyton Randolph died in 1775, and when he died, um, a man by the name of John Hancock replaced him. You know, John Hancock from Massachusetts. Well, long story short, Edmund Randolph's parents were loyalists. Edmund was a patriot. Well, Edmund's parents disowned him, all in the name of loyalty. Edmund's parents were just one of thousands of people who um, fled, who left in exile to either go on to uh, England, Canada, and for some, uh, including those uh, slaves whom took up their loyalties with the crown. They went um, to the Caribbean, England. Uh, some went to Nova Scotia. Uh, some went to um, the Republic of what we now know as uh, Sierra Leone. So just because you were a loyalist, it didn't mean that, um, that your decision to be a loyalist would grant you all of, the, um, all of life's amenities. There were many whom were loyal who died broke. So loyalties do come with a price. And I think throughout history's course, we have seen where loyalties have made or break not only just people as individuals, but, say, people of a nation, perhaps, given based upon uh, the circumstances at hand. So what I find, you know, again, interesting is uh, learning that... that um, just because there is a uh, conflict uh, now that the war has shifted gears in the South, it doesn't automatically mean that just because it's in the South that all of the commanders are have a Southern connection. We have North, we have middle um, colonies um, sending their forces down South to um, quash to, to quash the existing um, conflict. An important reminder. Maybe I said it already just a moment ago, but I can reiterate some of it here. There's an important reminder. That important reminder is knowing that not all British officers hailed from England. Isn't that true, folks? Just because you have a British officer in the American Revolutionary War, it doesn't mean he's originally from England. There were many British officers 
that actually hailed from Britain's 13 colonies, where their families' livelihoods, and when I think of families' livelihoods, how about business practices? Their business practices revolved around establishing what? Solid commercial ties to the crown. Had these solid commercial ties to the crown been, had been severed, what do you think the biggest fear would have been? The fear of losing economic ties to the crown meant no livelihood for survival short and long term. Businesses collapsing. So, yes, we can talk all we want about how great separation from England is, but if you're a loyalist, why would you want to separate? You've got it made well. You've got some great business ties to English merchants. You're in an elite position. You might be in that elite 5% category, knowing that your livelihood depends on uh, British goods either being exported out of America to England or being imported from England to America. One way or another, your livelihood is a must for long-term survival from, uh, from a business uh, practical standpoint. Who emerged as Britain's cavalry lead commander going into Utah Springs? How about um, a fellow named, uh, his title was Brevet, B-R-E-V-E-T, Brevet Major John Coffin, whom hailed from a prominent Boston family. And believe it or not, Brevet Major John Coffin served as a merchant before the war he was responsible for helping transport British soldiers to the attack launching ground station site on Breed's Hill, a.k.a. Bunker Hill, June 1775. Can you imagine being in his shoes, overseeing the, transport the, the transporting of British soldiers, making their way onto Breed's Hill, going up the hill where they where nearly 1,100 soldiers met um met their fate either by death or being severely wounded. Well, Brevet Major John Coffin, or rather I should I should say this, um, what is a brevet? I don't believe many of you all would know, but I will uh, tell you what a brevet is. A brevet is a form of military commission, a rank status in the army. It was a very it was a very um, high ranking status versus that of serving within the Corps. Um, so prior to Utah Springs, Coffin fought uh, elsewhere in South Carolina from Camden and Hobkirk's Hill. He led Loyalist troops up north in New York before coming south. So when we think of Brevet, we think of a rank status in the Army. Um, it's a form of military commission. In other words, you know, a commission where one has to pay for their rank. So basically it's a it's a very very prestigious rank. Pre prestigious rank title maybe I should say. Now as we get towards the end of this podcast segment, I have to ask you all this uh, very very important uh, question. Why is this one so important? Well, let's find out why. Why did British parliamentary figures have high hopes for British military success in, in choosing to invade the South after June 1778 
when British and Patriot forces ended their fighting at Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey, resulting in a stalemate. Stalemate being like a tie, a draw. There was no real clear-cut winner. Well, for starters, many officials in London believed the South as an entire region comprised of many loyalist peoples whom would go about rising up and supporting British forces. Think about this. You know, you've got so many people living along the, the low country of South Carolina, Charleston being that prized gem, you know, the number one leading port in the southern colonies. So if you are a member of parliament, it would be fair to say that, okay, we've got a good, strong, loyalist um, following in Charleston to where it would be easy for those people of loyalists standing in Charleston to be able to go and recruit people up and down the low country, north of us, like in the port of Georgetown, or to the south of us in uh, Beaufort, and then gradually make their way up into uh, interior um, strongholds, say like, you know, where we now know as Utah Springs or modern-day Utahville, into what we now know as the present-day capital of Columbia, Yes, we might be looking at 100 miles or more outside of the uh, low country um, coast, but if there are enough people whom are willing to make their way into the interior to recruit those whom are undecided and are willing to take up, um, to take up arms with the crown and by doing so being forgiven of their treason, then why not do it? Well, it's all easier said than done. What the British don't realize is that... Um, is that while, yes, maybe this goal could be achieved, what they don't realize is that they are in, um, they're in very different territory. They are in territory that, yes, they might have loyalist following, but their loyalist following may not even get to 50%. They could be dealing with people whom, whom have one set of uh, loyalties one week and it can be changed to the next, all because of uh, an incident that we might think of as being petty, but to them it's a, a sensitive matter. In other words, for the British, they don't realize that by going into the South that they are going to be dealing with a whole new system of fighting. They are going to be dealing with a whole new system of how um, people interact with one another. Basically, what the British don't realize is that South Carolina is going to be an internal war, not just a war between British and Patriots, but an internal war amongst those whom are loyal and those whom are Patriot, from a person-to-person um, -person, um, standpoint within the greater um, colony. Uh, secondly, there really had not been much fighting in the South, given the last major action came two years earlier when British troops failed to conquer Charleston, South Carolina in 1776, right before the Declaration of Independence had been um, officially adopted uh, by the Continental Congress on July 4th of 1776. But it is fair to say that the South had really become complacent going into, 1770, going into 1778, where after the British attempt in 1776 failed at Charleston, Many, uh, most notably uh, South Carolinians, and it would be fair to say that for Georgia as well, 
that many people believed that they had already seen the worst and had nothing else to fear for. Well, you know, it's one thing when an attack by the enemy fails, but is it fair to say that you should rest on your laurels and assume that the worst is behind you? No, because even after a failed attack, it, do, it may not necessarily mean that the enemy will come back within a couple of months, but if you give them time, like a couple of years down the road, they might decide to, to reshift their gears back into a, a southerly direction and perhaps start wreaking havoc on a colony that, um, that has become complacent and has not bothered to, um, to improve its, uh, upon its fortifications or redoubts. And by not improving upon those structures, you do become a sitting duck. And it's, and it's not a matter of if or when it will happen that is being attacked or being caught off by guard. It's a matter of time. Britain's invasion south was the last des really was the last desperate measure in trying to maintain support of a greater war effort amongst the people of England. Given by June of 1778, public support waned largely. In other words, when, when you're waning, you're declining. So public support has waned largely due to the British Army not being able to completely obliterate the Americans and their, great, and their greater cause at stake. What is the greater cause at stake here, folks, for the Americans? Independence. Yes, we have that document, the Declaration of Independence, that lists all the grievances for why we are declaring separation from England. While it's still a valid, relevant document, you can have all the documents you want declaring your independence, but if you are not able to officially defeat your enemy on a, on the battlefield, and we're not remember we're not talking one battlefield, but but we're talking um, over a course of nearly what now seven years. If we have not been able to uh, to meet our objective within that time frame, then how are we as a nation going to ever attain our true identity? That can't be done if we can't even achieve the most fundamental cause at stake, being that of independence. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm back on the air again next, we are going to uh, focus our uh, attention on the... Um, the march to uh, Utah Springs. So we're going to have a lot to learn about how we get about to this uh, march to Utah Springs. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again. And uh, wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Thank you again for being such ardent listeners.